0: The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. All right, so great to be together. I'm excited to dive into Mark with you, but let's pray. Ask God for his help. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for the gospel, and we're so thankful for these gospels that tell us about Jesus. So Lord, uh, we ask and we pray now that as we sit before your word, that your Holy Spirit would come and speak to us, that this would be bigger and more powerful than anything I could say in my own own skill or strength, Lord. But we pray that you would come. Open us up, Lord, to your word. Um, Let your word have its work in us. Let us see what this book is saying. Let us know how to respond. Work that in us, we pray for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. There are three questions we are very interested in here at Fountain of Life. And I want to say that these questions are incisive. What I mean by that is they give a necessary clarity to things. They're also fundamental. These questions are fundamental. It's something everybody needs to deal with. Moreover, these questions are relevant. We need to go back to them uh, over and over again, and we need to talk about these things with others. Three questions. Here they are. Who is Jesus? Who is he? Number two, what did he come to do? Number three, how do I respond? Who is Jesus? What did he come to do? How should I respond So this morning, we're beginning our study through the gospel of Mark, and answering those three questions is exactly why Mark wrote this document in the first place. So as we're just beginning the journey together this morning, we're gonna go right through the book. Uh, I wanna have a look at some of the background with you, and then think through what Mark's doing in his introduction here. But I think we can uh, kind of frame our thoughts in these ways this morning. Uh, So my first point will be, some of why you can believe this document, what, I, what I'm getting at there is this is a trustworthy document. It's not, it's not trying to sell you on something fake. Um, you, you can trust it. We'll look a little bit of why. Uh, number two, why you should believe this document. You don't, you don't want to go away from this document not grasping what it has for you. And then three, some of what you should do with its message. So why you can believe the document, why you should believe it, some of what you should do with its message. Those are our points for today. So number one, why can you believe this document? You are beginning a book called the Gospel of Mark. Does anybody ever wonder, why is it called the Gospel of Mark? Or maybe you wondered, why should I listen to whoever Mark is? That's a great question. I mean, he wasn't even one of the apostles explicitly. But you dig into the New Testament, you find that this guy Mark has a fascinating story. It really does. Acts 12 tells us his mother was wealthy, evidently had a big house. So it's a place where the early Christians, they met often. In fact, uh, if you know the story, when Peter is released from prison, that's where he goes. Mark's mom's house. And that's where all the believers are praying for him. Uh, later... Mark goes on a missionary journey with the Apostle Paul and Barnabas, who is his cousin, did you know? Mark and Barnabas were cousins. So they go on this, they're they're spreading the gospel around all these cities and they're planting churches. Somehow, we don't really know the details, Mark flakes on that trip. So he, maybe it's too hard, who knows, but he abandons his friends, he abandons the work, and then the Apostle Paul kind of basically fires him, won't, won't go on the next trip with him. Because he flaked like he did. But God works in Mark's life. And so in Second Timothy, Paul's last letter, Paul actually refers to Mark we'll look at that for a second. Timothy, 2 Timothy 4:11, Paul writes, "Luke alone is with me." And he tells Timothy, "Get, Get who. Get Mark, I need him. Bring him with you. He's very useful to me in ministry. So he's, he's been renewed. He's been restored. Uh, and then finally, last thing to see, which is very important for us this morning, Mark was an assistant to the apostle Peter in Rome. So look at 1 Peter 5.13. She who has it, Babylon, well, let's unpack that. She, local church, Babylon, that's, how, that's what you call Rome. That's how they feel about Rome. She who's in Babylon, who's lo- who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does who? Mark. And then what, is, what does Peter say about Mark. My son, so they're, they're very close. Mark works with Peter very closely. And you know, it's, it's interesting to think about what Mark and Peter have in common. They both know what it's like to kind of be prominent in leadership and then really mess it up and, and live in that shame and that failure, but then also be restored. So they share that in common. That's Really interesting, restored by the grace of God. End result, Mark loves Jesus. He loves Jesus' people. And so we, what we get is, by the late 60s AD, Peter is killed for preaching Jesus. And the unified testimony of the earliest leaders of the church tell us, Mark wrote this gospel from the eyewitness account of Peter's testimony about Jesus. So these are Peter's teachings, recollections about Jesus as recorded very intentionally for the church by Mark, Peter's close associate. So there's there's some real honesty here. Number one, um, if if this was a movement that's just trying to sell stuff, you would call this the gospel of Peter. He's the famous name, but they call it the gospel of Mark. Why? Why? Because Mark wrote it. They're just telling you the truth. Mark wrote it. Um, not only that, in this gospel Matthew, Mark, Luke, John this gospel is most honest about Peter and his failings. That's fascinating. Mark tells you the truth about Peter. And, and as you read through it, sometimes well, he doesn't look so good. He's foolish, he makes terrible mistakes. Listen, if you're trying to sell something, do you make one of your most prominent leaders sometimes look like a fool in in one of your core documents? There's no way. Why why is Mark happy to tell you the truth about what Peter was like? Number one, because Peter told him the truth about what Peter was like. And number two, because they're both absolutely committed to honesty. Absolutely committed to honesty. So you can trust this book. There's just some reasons you can. Let's think, we thought a little bit about the author. Let's think about the audience. Who's Mark writing to? Well, this, this gospel is unique in a few ways. Number one, it's the, it's the first gospel written. Um, but number two, it's written for Roman Christians. Roman Christians. So if you read Matthew, that very much has a, a Jewish audience. You can see that in many ways. But Mark, Mark was written for Romans, so he uses Latin words to describe things often. Also, uh, Mark explains Palestinian religious practices, because he's assuming his audience doesn't know what he's talking about. You see that in Mark. And finally, uh, the great profession in this book, it culminates in a profession of a Roman centurion, if you can believe that. So this, he really is writing it for Roman Christians or Romans thinking about becoming Christians. But I also, wanna, I also wanna think about this. So why did Mark write this? What's motivating him? So certainly one motive, it's, it's obvious, right? He, he wants to get Peter's account of Jesus written down so others can see Jesus through Peter's eyes. We want, we want the world to see Jesus. That's certainly a fundamental motivation, but there's more. In the late 60s, Nero, the Roman emperor, went nuts, and there were devastating fires that raged throughout the city. He may have caused them, not sure, but whatever the cause, Nero ends up blaming the societal collapse on Christians. So here's an account from the historian Tacitus, okay, this is a... Roman historian, late first century. This is what Tacitus says. Nero fabricated scapegoats. Okay? This is not a Christian trying to pump up Christians. He, Tacitus is not a Christian. But he's telling you, Nero fabricated scapegoats, and he punished, this is a scary phrase, with every refinement. <laughs> the notoriously depraved Christians, as they were popularly called, First, Nero had self-acknowledged Christians arrested. Then on their information, large numbers of others were condemned. And here it gets ugly. Look, dressed in wild animal skins, they were torn to pieces by dogs, were crucified, were made into be torches to be ignited after dark. How many of you coming to church next Sunday if that's happening in this country? Where are we going to meet? Think about what these people are going through, the persecution they're experiencing. So one reason Mark is writing this then is if you're going to endure for Jesus, you better hold the honest truth of who he is, what he came to do, and how to respond to him very closely. This is written for a persecuted church. This is someone giving hard, important truth to people who desperately need it. We can trust it. Just a couple more things about the book. It's written, it's gotta be written probably eight, between 8065 and 8070. It's a, it's a really good guess. So you know what that means? That means it can't be legend or myth. Can we just clear that out? Oh, look at the myth of Jesus in Mark. No, 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 no. If you're going to have legends or myth, you need hundreds of years of separation from the source. This is written 30 years after the life of Jesus, which means when Mark tells you about miracles or feeding thousands of people or, or any of these things that seem supernatural and maybe hard to believe, you realize when he wrote it, um, there would have been crowds of people who could have said, Oh, I was there, that never happened. That doesn't happen. Yeah, that happened because it's written 30 years after Jesus' life. So Mark can't be making stuff up. Moreover, we have a paper trail on this document from today all the way back into the second century. So what I mean by that is when you open this book right here, you are really and truly reading Mark's careful account of the eyewitness testimony of Peter about Jesus. It's right here in our hands. Amazing. All, all that's to say, you can trust it, all right? Why should we trust it? Well, now, now let's get into some of what Mark said. He begins his book here, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel. Now, before we go any further, I want you to know that, uh, first of all, clarifying terms, right? We, you could say this is Mark's gospel about the gospel. Is that confusing? So, so the word gospel is both a kind of literature Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's a, it's a kind of literature, a witness document about Jesus. But so it's a gospel about the gospel. Does that make sense? It's telling you the gospel. But we need to realize that the word gospel was not new at all to this Roman audience. Not new at all. Uh, the, gosp- the word gospel there would commonly mean really good news that changes everything about life. So, so if, uh, if, if your home army won an incredibly important battle, someone would come and announce the gospel, the good news, we won, we, uh, the enemy can't get us. Or if there's a new king, listen to the gospel, the good news. Uh, in fact, I'm gonna read to you an inscription that was on a building in 6 BC. Listen to this. The birthday of Augustus Caesar has been for the whole world, what is it, everyone? Did you know? The beginning of the gospel. Do you, do you hear this claim? What's the good news that changes everything for us? According to the Roman culture, it's that it's the Caesar, Caesar Augustus. Uh, it continues. The most divine Caesar we should consider equal to the beginning of all things. For when everything was falling into disorder and tending toward disillusion, he restored it once more and gave the whole world a new aura. Caesar, the common good fortune of all, the beginning of life and vitality. Wow. Now how many of you today you are so thrilled about Caesar? You know, even if you're not a Christian, you're like, interesting historical fact, not a gospel. It's not the good news. it doesn't affect me at all. I don't care. But you see, in that day, how people understood the gospel. The good news is Roman power, political power, domination of nations, the Pax Romana, right, Roman peace. He changed everything for us, and we live for him. And in fact, these Christians, when they won't live for him, let's light them up or feed them to animals. And so it's very subversive, isn't it, for Mark to say? Let me actually tell you the gospel. It's not Caesar. Let me tell you the gospel. And he points to something that extends far beyond Caesar. So it's not just Mark's Roman audience that would have had an idea of the word gospel and some context there. A Jewish audience would have it as well. So if you read the Septuagint, you know what that is? That's the translation of the Old Testament, which was in Hebrew, into Greek, Okay? And so there's phrases in the prophets, Hebrew prophets, and you'll you'll get proclaim good news. And in and the, in, in the with the Greek word it's it's the same Greek word gospel, good news. And so Mark then wants to start, hey let's look, let's look back further. And so in verse 2 he says, as it is written and he gives, these, he gives you this kind of combination of prophecies from Malachi and Isaiah. He quotes Isaiah. That's a normal way to cite text back then. You, you, you quote the more prominent prophet. But look, look at some of these, some of these texts he's quoting from. Malachi 3.1. Malachi 3.1. What does God say to his prophet? This is 400 years before Jesus. What's God going to do? Behold, I, what does he do? This is really important. I send my messenger. So we got a messenger coming, and what's he going to do? He's going to prepare the way before me. God's coming? God's coming? What does it look like for God to come? How many of you get nervous when you have to have hospitality? Somebody's coming over, right? You got to clean stuff. You're like, we can't do this. It's impossible. People are going to see how we really live, you know? It's chaos. Make it better why they come over. What happens when God comes over? He's coming. That's what this. He, he, the Lord whom you seek, and it's a little sarcastic in, con, in context, He will come. Are you sure you're ready for this? So God's coming, but who comes before God? His messenger. That's the good news. God's coming. Or here's Isaiah, three hundred years before Malachi. This is seven hundred something years before Jesus. Isaiah forty three. A voice cries in the wilderness. So, so where are we going to meet God in some way? In the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for who? Who's coming? God's coming. And then down further in the chapter in verse 9, O Jerusalem, herald of, and there's our word. In Greek, euangelion, the gospel, the same word. This is the good news. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, Behold, your God, he's coming. That's the gospel. And what happens before he comes? There's a messenger. All right, and we're going to meet you in the wilderness somehow. You know, the wilderness in, this, in the storyline of the Bible, the wilderness is a place of both testing and renewal. God, God brings you somehow to the wilderness, and, and you get refined there. You get tested. You get worked on, but you also, you also have a closeness with God in the wilderness. We're going to meet you in the wilderness. You're, you're called away from other allegiances to deal with. With God. So we have this, this, the beginning of the gospel, Mark says. I'm gonna tell you, show you the beginning of the gospel and it's the promise that God is coming and that will change everything. God's gonna come. But before he comes, there'll be a messenger who will get you ready for him, okay? So do you see what Mark is now saying? Look at, look at verse one. Mark's very clear. The beginning of the gospel of who? Jesus Christ. The son of God. What does it look like when God comes? It looks like Jesus. That's what it looks like. It looks like Jesus. See, so you see what Mark says about Jesus. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's worth unpacking a little bit. If somebody out on the street, you were like, oh, I'm a Christian. Oh, you worship Jesus Christ? Yes. What, what does Christ mean? What would you say? You should have an answer for that. What does Christ mean? It's not his last name, right? It's not his last name. No, it's a title. In fact, uh, the the Jewish people in this day, they were waiting for the Christ, and there were false Christs. There were people who pretended to have this title, and no, they didn't. What does Christ mean? Well, I'd, I'd probably sum it up like this. The promised divine king. First word, promised, promised. So you get the, the idea of Christ, anointed king from the Old Testament. And so really, I, I'd like to propose the entire Old Testament from Adam and Eve's first sin all the way to the end of Malachi, promise. It's going to show you in a bunch of ways how you, you really need Jesus. It, it shows you things about Jesus and how he's coming. But in the end, it's kind of a dumpster fire without Jesus. And, and the promises we have left that Mark is showing us is, is this hope. Well, he's going to come. And now Mark is saying, oh, he's here. He, he's come. Right here, he's come. I'm telling you about it in this document. He's come. He's the Christ. He's the promised king. He's, gonna, he's the one who's going to reign over his people. He's going to reign over the earth, over all nations. But he's also, Mark wants to make sure we know he's the promised divine king. He's not just another king. He's not just another David even. No, he's far greater, Um, something entirely different because he tells you he's the son of God. He's this this man come, yes, in human flesh. He's also divine. He is equal with the father. He is truly God. That's the gospel. Who Jesus is? Jesus Christ, the son of God. God. Well, then we get a couple verses about John. And I think, so in context, why are we talking about this weird guy in the wilderness? Why are we spending time on him? John's pretty much the only person Mark spends any time on other than Jesus in the whole book. Why does he spend time on John? Well, remember the promises? What, what were the promises from Malachi and Isaiah? God's going to come. Who's going to come before God? a messenger. And so in order to establish what we want to establish here, we need to point out that there was a legit actual messenger who prepared the way for God to come. So who is it? Verse 4. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So this is just Mark is showing us God kept his promise. Mark is showing us who Jesus is. In, or, in order for us to see some of who Jesus is, he's God that has come according to these prom- promises in the prophets. And also, we know this because John was the messenger that would come and prepare the way. You know, it's hard for us to overstate how incredibly popular John was with the masses. I heard, I heard one... Uh, pastor say, if John was here today, like his sermons would be the most downloaded. Um, politicians would have to like pay attention to what he said. They'd be worried about him or you know, skeptical, but he, he would be on their radar. Um, every book he wrote would, would sell out. He was incredibly popular. Uh, popular. Did you know he makes extra biblical historical sources? Crowds loved him. And even though his message was, you know, it looks harsh, he was not the guy with the bullhorn on the corner that everybody's like. So, some of those guys want to be like, I'm like John the Baptist. No, you're not. No, you're not. Because crowds of people thronged to hear John the Baptist. He was incredibly persuasive. He, he had a unique authority to him. Uh, sometimes he's portrayed as like a freak. He, he was not a freak. He was, a, he was very skillful at what he did. It was obvious to the people. I mean, later Jesus makes uh, this illustration in a debate, and he says to the Pharisees, so um, was John the Baptist from God or not? And the Pharisees won't even answer him because if they say from God, they need to admit who Jesus is. And if they say from men, The crowds will stone them. What does that tell you about what the crowds thought about John the Baptist? They they held him in high, high respect. So he's an incredibly important figure. Well, now we could ask, well, why does Mark mention John's dietary and fashion choices? (laughs) You know. And in our day, right, we could start a video blog about the John the Baptist diet it's healthy, it's economically sustainable, right? And you get all the protein you need from your locusts. Evidently, honey is very healthy, okay? You could even start like a, a workout clothing line. You've got camel hair and a leather belt, right? The whole, no, that's not what any of this is about. It's not what any of this is about. Look at King 2 Kings eight. So tying together a few themes, Malachi, we read him, he said a prophet like Elijah is going to come. Elijah was, a, you know, the prominent prophet of the Old Testament. Look at 2 Kings 1.8. They answered him, so, so somebody asked, who is this guy? And they answered him, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And the response is, who is it? It's Elijah. So it's, the idea is it's very simple clothing, It's very frugal clothing, and it communicates something. It communicates, I belong to God, and I don't belong to any of these other human structures. I belong to God. You won't find John um, in the palaces partying. Uh, You won't find him beholden to power structures. Um, He cares, but he doesn't care because he's a prophet, and his one role is to proclaim the word of God, and that's it. And so, Mark is showing you, everything about John shows you, this is the promised messenger that comes before the Lord. He's a prophet. He is the prophet. And so, You realize what Mark is showing us? As notable as John was historically, so notable, as notable as he was historically, there's really just one thing that's important about him. It's his message. And what's the heartbeat of his message? Get ready for Jesus. Get ready for Jesus. You know, we could could pause and just take a little lesson right now. If you want to do any. You want to live your life for important things. You want to do something with your life. You want to have a ministry. Um, learn from John. John's, John the Baptist says in the gospel of John, I must decrease. He must increase. John's whole identity, as, as popular, as influential as he was, his whole identity was, it is really not about me at all. It's about Jesus. Isn't that the way we should be? It's about him. That's John's message. Get ready for Jesus. And so you see, he had a message of, let's sum it up, baptism of repentance in preparation for the king. His message was baptism of repentance in preparation for the king. This is not Christian baptism per se. It was something, it was something different. Uh, it was a radical idea for, for the time. A, a lot of scholars think a, a good Jew would never think, oh, I need to be baptized because you're already a child of Abraham. You already go to synagogue. You're already moral. You know the law. You don't get baptized. But if a Gentile, like one of those people, pagan sinner, if they want to become Jewish, well, we'll baptize them, just sh- you know, get, them, get them ceremonially cleaned. And so here John says to everyone, to everyone, I don't care how religious you are, he says. I don't, I don't care how moral you are. I don't care how much you've memorized the Bible. You all are on the same platform, and that platform is sinner. And you need to repent. Everybody needs to be, everybody needs to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. And so you see what's happening. This is remarkable. The people from Judah and the hillside so you, so you get every kind of person you get the poor, you get the powerful, you get the rich you get the you get the nobody. They're, they're all coming and they're confessing their sins I'm a fraud, I'm a fake yeah, I went to church yeah I know the scriptures, but it's not even hitting my heart i've got it I've got to have some integrity, I got to be done with my hypocrisy. That's what John was drawing people to and say so they would go out to the, mil, to the wilderness in a way to meet with God and say, I, I've got to get right with you. I've got I've to put my sin, my rebellion away. And, and John says this whole process of you realizing the truth of who you are and your need, that gets you Ready? for Jesus. That gets you ready for Jesus. Let's see three things John emphasizes about Jesus. Verse 7, John preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I. So one thing to see about Jesus is that he's mighty. It's interesting, again, to compare Jesus and Caesar, right, two competing gospels of the day. Yeah, Caesar's mighty. He can defeat nations and throw you to the lions. But Jesus is the son of God mighty. He's sovereign over all of it. Nations rise and fall according to his hand and plan. But, But even here, there's more. You know, Jesus uses this word of himself in Mark 3. It's a different kind of mighty. Jesus can do something Caesar could never do. In this use of the word in Mark 3, Jesus says, I'm stronger than Satan, I'm going to beat him up, and I'm going to steal his stuff. I love it when Jesus talks like that, don't you? It's like, let's go, you know? I can whoop Satan, and I'm going to steal his stuff. Whoa, what does that mean? It means Jesus is strong enough to, to save people from sin, death, and hell. He's that kind of mighty. he save you. Second thing, Jesus is glorious. John uses a, uh, a negative example, right? Um, in ancient times, feet are nasty. Some of you are like, same thing in modern times. Um, <laughs> I agree. Yeah. Ancient times especially, you're wearing old sandals, it's a dusty path, animal droppings, etc. Ooh, feet. The reason I'm mentioning that is because only the lowest of the lowest slave would ever have the job of washing feet. Oh, only the lowest of the lowest would ever have the job of doing that kind of job. It's like cleaning toilets or something. And, and John actually says, um, this guy's so glorious, I would be ashamed at the, at the privilege of washing his feet. I don't even deserve... To be the lowest of his servants. And, and imagine being there in that context. John is a big deal to you if you're in that crowd. He is respected, he's a prophet. Some people think he might be the Christ. He's a huge deal. And he says, I don't even deserve to be the lowest slave of the one who's coming. Jesus is glorious, he's majestic beautiful he's valuable if we could really see who he was we'd just be like you would weep tears of joy that you got to wash his feet it's that kind of an idea he's glorious not only that he can transform you all the way down he can transform you so john baptized with water and it had it had a significance right you go to the water it symbolizes your cleansing as you confess your sins God is merciful, he forgives you, and so baptism, there in that case, it symbolizes that cleansing. But John says, man, all I've got is water. You dry off, right? Jesus can drench you with the presence of God himself. The third person of the Trinity, you will be immersed into him. And, and I'm not talking about a gift for certain Christians, if that's what you're thinking about. I'm talking about God saving you and changing you and giving you himself forever. That's what we're talking about. The Holy Spirit visiting you, your heart change, your identity change, your future change, the way you see the world change, how you live in the world change, being able to enjoy the new world that is coming. It's the gospel you get God himself because of Jesus Christ. So we've thought about how we can believe this message. Now we're thinking about why we should believe this message. This is what God is doing in the world. This is the greatest news there ever could be, and you do not want to miss it. And this is the, this is the epic fork in your, in your life, in the road of your life. And, and one way is... The face of God and his love and forgiveness and restoration in heaven. And the other way is rebellion and judgment and hell. Uh, One way is love and life and truth. The other way is lostness, brokenness, darkness. You don't want to miss the gospel. You should believe this. All right, so we're thinking about, I started with three questions. Who is Jesus? Do you have an answer for me from this text at this point? Who is he? He's the promised divine king. He's the son of God. That's who he is. How should we respond? And you get, well, I should, I should go meet John in the woods. OK, I, I should, I should uh, repent of my sins. Yeah, we're getting there. But that's not enough yet. It's not enough yet. There's something else we need to see. Yeah, as we walk through this book together, and I'm, I'm so excited to do it over the weeks, Mark tells us, doesn't he, who Jesus is at the very beginning of the book. It's not a secret. Here he is. And then he proves it throughout his book as he shows you story after story after story after story. Um, This is who he is. See, see, see? And then it's almost ridiculous as we read the book how through the book, nobody gets it. Even Jesus' own disciples are so slow to get it. They just can't, it won't go in. And when someone does begin to see it, Jesus actually tells them to be quiet and not tell anyone. See that several times. And you're going to think, I don't understand. Why would you say, don't tell? Why does Jesus do this? Here's why. Because you can't really understand Jesus and how to respond to him until you see with clarity what he came to do. Jesus is going to shock everybody. Mark 10, 33. look at this. See, we are going up to Jerusalem. This is the Christ. This is God's promised King. This is the Son of God. See, we're going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him, and they will spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. The first half of Mark is, look at the authority of Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. The second half of Mark is, look at how Jesus came to die. I mean, the book is loaded over, leaning into his death. How different a gospel than the gospel of Caesar. This king is also the son of man who came to suffer. And why? And friends, here's the beautiful mystery. It's his cross where he shows his might Remember, he's mighty. This is how he defeats the strong man and claims you for his own, Mark ten forty-five. The son of man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Oh, just behold, with clarity, what's at the heart of the gospel. That Jesus Christ, God himself in the flesh who deserves all glory, praise, honor, love, and service from all of us forever, he says, I came to serve you and the way that he did it was to die in your place on a Roman cross. And on that cross, he bought you. He made the trade where he was treated as your sins deserved as your substitute in your place, taking on the wrath of God we each deserve for our sin. That's what he did for you. That's how he served you. And he rose from the dead in victory, showing that it's true. Friends, it's at the cross where we see who Jesus is. It is it's very ironic that in this gospel, the first person to really get who Jesus is as the son of God It's a Roman centurion. And what does he say? Mark 15, 39. When does he say it? And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, said, truly this man was the son of God. It's at the cross where you see more of who he is and what he came to do. Jesus is the son of God who came to save you from your sin by dying and rising on your behalf. Who is he? The promised divine king. What did, he come to, what did he come to do? Save us from our sins through his life, death, and resurrection. How should we respond? Well, we're going uh, to see, I'm going I'm to give you three things just briefly. We're going to see them have more depth as we go through this book later. But I'm going to give you three responses that fit with who Jesus is and what he's done. Number one. Repent and believe. Look what Jesus says in Mark one fifteen: Repent and believe the gospel. These are two aspects of faith. Repent means to turn from, okay? You're living for, every one of you has a gospel right now, right? You have a good news. You have something you're chasing, something you're living for. And for some of you, it's not Jesus. Or maybe, maybe you say, I'm a Christian, but I, I put some other things too, too high on my list. To repent is to, is to realize, I'm going the wrong way. It's like all those crowds that went out to John the Baptist. I'm living for the wrong things. I got to turn. To repent is to turn from sin and rebellion. And then faith, or, or believing, is to turn to. Jesus, you're my God. Jesus, I look to you, your life, your death, your resurrection. I believe you. I believe your word. Turn from, turn to, repent and believe. So of course, if you're not a Christian, Uh, we're so glad you're here. We're patient with you. If you want to take time and be like, I need to figure this out. I got questions. There's nothing more I would love than to talk with you about those questions. But what we really want for you is we want you to hear this gospel and believe it. Repent and turn from your sins. And we say that to you because we were all in the same boat as you. We were sinful rebels. And then God in his kindness shows us Jesus. Nobody's here because we're better than other people. We're all sinful and we need Jesus to save us. Repent and believe. Second way to respond. You know, one reason that first question, who is Jesus, is so important is it frames how you respond, right? So if Jesus is just a good teacher, isn't that everybody's favorite thing with Jesus? Oh, he's such a good teacher. Everybody likes Jesus. Maybe he's even a prophet. If he's a good teacher, what can you do with him? Well, Say nice things about him every once at Christmas, right? Maybe, maybe hop in a church once. But you, you can take some of his advice, but in the end, you still get to live for yourself. He did not come to be your good teacher. I and mean, don't get me wrong, is he a good teacher? Yeah, he's the best. He came to save us from our sins and establish himself as king over our minds, our hearts, and our lives. So we're going to see a discipleship in Mark 2. Look at Mark eight thirty four. This is what Jesus said. If anyone would come after me, let him what? Deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Which means there's going to be ways all the time. We're dying to ourselves in order to follow Jesus. And we see in verse 35, it's worth it. worth it. You want to save your life? You want to enjoy the gospel and everything God has for you? Everyone who would save his life, what do you have to do on the way? Lose it. Give up your kingship over yourself and trust Jesus as king. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's We'll save it. Hey, do you think that helps, that Christian getting dressed in animal skins and thrown to the dogs in the Roman Colosseum? It helps. Second way to respond, devote your life to following Jesus at any cost. Number three, it's implied by our text today, follow Jesus knowing you're a beloved child of God. When John says Jesus is going to drench you with the Holy Spirit, the implications of that are just overwhelming. You read through what the New Testament gives us about the Spirit does. The Spirit pours out the love of God our Father into our hearts so that we cry Abba Father. You know God as your Father through the Spirit Jesus Christ gives. You have a heart changed to love Jesus and his people through what the Holy Spirit does. He, the Spirit forms us together as the temple of God, the dwelling place together, the family of God. And we know Jesus is with us always, no matter what, to the end of the age. He's our great inheritance. That's all coming from this gift of the person of the Holy Spirit. How should we respond? Repent and believe. Devote your life to following Jesus at any cost. Follow Jesus as a child of God. And why would we do this? Because this great gospel, who is Jesus, the promised divine king? What did he come to do? Save your sins through his life, death, and resurrection. How should we respond? I hope the Lord's showing you how you need to respond today. Let's pray. Lord God, there is nothing better than the gift of your very son. I pray your Holy Spirit would be here with us richly right now to press that into us, our minds and our hearts. Lord, help us just be amazed that Jesus Christ would serve us in this way, would give his life up for us on the cross. And Lord, move in us to respond. I pray your whispering voice would be in everybody's mind and heart this morning. You'd be pushing them into how they, each one, should respond to this great news of who Jesus is and what he came to do. Do that work in us. We pray for your glory. Amen. Thank you for listening, and we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.